I'm Ann Berger-Lesk, Radcliffe class of 1968. I have been a longtime donor to first Radcliffe and then the Radcliffe Institute. I am no longer a donor. You're listening to The Annex, a podcast from 15 Minutes, the Harvard Crimson's weekly magazine, exploring who and how the histories of Radcliffe College and women's education at Harvard are written, omitted, and rewritten. I'm your host, Matteo Wong. This is the final episode in a three-part series examining what's at stake in the rebranding of the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. If you haven't listened to the first two, you should start there and then come back. As a result of what I learned in the follow-up to the rebranding, I asked to be released from a very substantial 50th reunion pledge and Harvard acceded to my request. I feel that the rebranding is essentially the canary in the coal mine. I started this podcast by juxtaposing a current event with an historiographical trend. The event is that hundreds of Radcliffe alumni, like Anne Lesk, are writing letters to Harvard administrators opposing the rebranding of the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, the inheritor of their alma mater, to use the shorthand name Harvard Radcliffe Institute in most communications. Here's Claire Mays, Radcliffe Class Secretary of 1981, who has been helping to organize the letter writing. I note that everybody else who signed these letters, and you're right, there are more than 250 signers in the class of 81. There are hundreds of signers in class of 71, class of 66. Uh, a very interesting set of signers from the 60th reunion. We all share a bewilderment and a sense of outrage and distaste that the identity of this formidable, evolving intellectual resource that is Radcliffe that that branding be understood as the best way to approach that identity. We find that outrageous. These hundreds of petitioners allege that the quote-unquote rebranding, or what some think is more accurately called a renaming, or even unnaming, diminishes the proud legacy of Radcliffe College, which was the women's college counterpart to the man-only Harvard until only a few decades ago. To them, putting Harvard's name first erases, or at least minimizes, the history of women's contributions to and struggles against the university. In the rebrand, Harvard lexically, and thus symbolically, precedes Radcliffe, which on the surface is part and parcel with how many tellings of Harvard's history and the history of higher education rarely mention women, which Professor Emerita Laurel Ulrich has dubbed Harvard's womanless history. The historiography is that people in power write history. Portraits, university timelines, archival records, popular media coverage of Harvard, they are dominated by the rich white men who for centuries ran the university and were often preoccupied with their own dominant demographic. But the rebranding adds a wrinkle to this notion of womanless history. It is not the same as the absence of women along the walls of Annenberg, because leadership at Radcliffe, including Dean Tomiko Brown-Nagin, say they chose the name Harvard Radcliffe Institute to celebrate the legacy of Radcliffe and women in higher education. For instance, Brown-Nagin wrote in a note on the Institute's website, 
quote, Our mission remains unchanged since our founding as the Radcliffe Institute. In fact, the central goal of our recent brand refresh is to proudly embrace our deep and enduring ties to Radcliffe College, end quote. But hundreds of alumni don't see it that way, such as Paula Tavro, class of 1981. More is there than simply a name change. That it's the identity of Radcliffe is being so submerged as to become virtually invisible now. Alumni and administrators disagreed not over a name then, but an identity. Over what Radcliffe College and the Radcliffe Institute were, what their legacies mean, and what their future will be. And these histories and names aren't just academic questions or a parochial concern of Radcliffe and Harvard alums. Names and history inform how we understand the university's identity and trajectory. Which is why in 2020, Harvard convened a committee to articulate principles on renaming, and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences convened one on visual culture and signage. Committees that investigate names and images with racist and other harmful legacies, and how best to change such symbols at Harvard going forward. Many believe it is long overdue to give Radcliffe the same attention. Here's Claire Mays again. The process, you know, of within a week getting more than 200 signatures on a letter saying that, you know, it's not Harvard Radcliffe, it's Radcliffe. During that process, during this intensive one-week consultation in which people spontaneously said, I signed for Radcliffe. We learned through the snippets that they wrote to us in their emails when they gave their permission to sign their name to the letter. They expressed in many different ways that Radcliffe has a meaning and that Radcliffe is important. To fully understand this controversy at Radcliffe, we need to understand why its leadership undertook the rebrand. Radcliffe Head of Communications Jane Huber summarized the decision in an email to me, writing, quote, I have nothing less than deep compassion for the alumni's response, which I believe is grounded in the painful history of women being displaced by men or marginalized in male-dominated institutions. Dean Brown-Nagin and the Institute leadership have approached this process explicitly to ensure that the Radcliffe name and Radcliffe College's legacy are elevated and not readily elided or omitted as we have seen done in recent years. We reviewed coverage generated by influential news agencies about the Institute and discovered that our name was regularly distilled for brevity to a Harvard Institute. Any mention of Radcliffe was removed. The data were clear. If we did not offer a concise name, others would supply one for us." End quote. So they adopted Harvard Radcliffe Institute as a shorthand, although the full name remains the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University. The next question is, why does the Harvard name come first? Something interesting is that across these letters and across these years, and not even necessarily in prior agreement, everyone has asked the dean to take as the shorthand, you know, the brand label, uh, Radcliffe Institute at Harvard. The answer is on the Institute's website, quote, We chose to emulate all other schools at Harvard that effectively claim both their family relationship to Harvard and their unique and autonomous history. For example, Harvard Law School, Harvard Kennedy School, and Harvard Business School. In this context, Harvard Radcliffe Institute was an obvious choice. End quote. If we're going with the family analogy, one might quip that Harvard is the patriarch, as many I interviewed mentioned, including Susan Smart, 
Radcliffe Class Secretary of 1971. I mean, let's think back to the uh, history of, of women um, in the 20th century. In the 1950s, it was considered more prestigious socially and professionally if you used your husband's name, like Mr. John Smith, rather than appearing as Ann Smith. So when you now put that Harvard name in front of the Ratcliffe, what are you saying to young women today? Are we moving backward in that? Here's where the disagreement over Ratcliffe's legacy and how to best honor it begins. Paradoxically, the Institute's reasoning implies that to prevent Radcliffe from being overshadowed by Harvard, they had to prioritize the Harvard name, perhaps because after decades, if not centuries, of womanless histories, and after decades of Radcliffe disappearing from the life of undergraduates, leaders at the Institute had little other choice. Manisha Sinha, a professor of American history at the University of Connecticut, was a fellow at Radcliffe in 2019, the year before it was renamed. She wasn't aware of the controversy and expressed sympathy for the aggrieved alumni when I explained, but said, The moment that they changed the college into the institute, I think that was the time when already the distinctive women's college did cease, cease to exist. Uh, and now it seems to be just a naming controversy. It's to me, in my opinion, and again, it's a limited opinion because I didn't, you know, I'm not an alum of Radcliffe College and not an alumnus. I'm not, a, um, you know, in any way related to Harvard administration that made the decision one way or the other. So I have no, uh, no particular stake in this argument at all. Uh, it just seems to me that that transition took place a long time ago and this naming change simply furthers that transition. The rebranding, then, extends the merger with Harvard that began in 1971 and officially ended in 1999, but also the submerger of Radcliffe's particular history. A few other Radcliffe fellows I emailed, who were at the Institute the year the name changed or the year after, responded saying they had not known about the name change. In other words, Radcliffe College's legacy and the historical Bunting Institute may not be obviously relevant to the Institute's current work or the fellows it supports. But it's not like Radcliffe's name is totally gone, as Huber's email made it out. Some news outlets like the BBC and CNN have used the Institute's full name in reporting major scientific discoveries. Here's Nancy Stieber, class of 1971, who you heard from in episode one and strongly opposes the rebranding. Just just speaking straight from my heart, they, they, they're complaining that they don't get the name recognition if they... If, if, if it's reported as the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies, people don't know where it is or what it is. Well, if they're so interested in, in increasing the prestige and the renown of this institute, then put your effort into that because then the name will become better known because of its accomplishments. So putting Harvard's name first was not an inevitability, but a choice. And if the brand refresh preserves the Radcliffe name from totally disappearing, I have to ask, to what end? When the agreement was made to merge Radcliffe with Harvard, the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, the, the, the resulting unit, took its place next to all of these existing schools. But it itself is not a school. So if you say School of Medicine, you, you, somebody could say, well, which school of medicine? Oh, you mean the Harvard School of Medicine? I understand. It's integral to 
the naming of the school. But if you say Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, it is one of a select number of institutes of advanced study. It doesn't have its own faculty. It doesn't have a student body. It is not a school. It's an institute of advanced study and was so constituted from the beginning. So it's the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard or of Harvard, if you prefer. And to call it Harvard Radcliffe is to deny the rich history that produced it in the first place. Harvard University did not generate this Institute of Advanced Study. It is also the inheritor of the Radcliffe College Endowment, and as such, should not be saddled with a Harvard Radcliffe naming. Likening the Harvard Radcliffe Institute to the Harvard Law School implies Harvard created the Radcliffe Institute as a way to expand or improve the university's academic and professional work. But as Sally Schwager explained in episode one, Radcliffe College was founded in the late 1800s because the men in leadership at the university did not think a Harvard education was appropriate for, and indeed thought Harvard's prestige would be hurt by women, whose role they saw at best as teachers of their sons. And as I went over in the last episode, Radcliffe President Mary Bunting created the Radcliffe Institute for Independent Study in 1960 to support women's academic and professional ambitions because institutions like Harvard and structural sexism at large prevented them from doing so. Here's Tavro again. We've never considered Radcliffe to be a school like the law school or the business school. Uh, it always had been historically this college for women because Harvard would not allow women in its doors. Um, and uh, all the way up through the 60s. I mean, women were not even able to enter Lamont Library. I was reading recently uh, an article in Harvard Magazine that I wasn't even aware that if you went into Widener Library, you couldn't like go through the stacks if you're a woman. You had to enter and sit in just one room, request books from Widener Library that could then be brought to you that you could only read in that little room. So these were indignities. Uh, this was just blatant sexism. At least for Tavrow and many of the petitioners, Radcliffe's legacy is as much made up of triumphs as it is of Harvard being exclusionary and dominated by men. This is not, however, exactly how Radcliffe's history goes on the Harvard Radcliffe Institute website, which lays out Radcliffe's history as a progression of co-educational firsts. The site refers to the chartering of Radcliffe in 1894 as a triumph. The degrees, quote, equivalent in all respects to the degrees given to the graduates of Harvard College, end quote. The website then celebrates women's inclusion into classes during World War II, into GSAS, coeducational dorms, and the various stages of merger, concluding with the 1999 merger, Drew Faust becoming the first dean of the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study and then Harvard's first woman president, as if coeducation were the end point and the 21st century marked the end of history. Of course, Another way to narrate the exact same events would be to say, for hundreds of years, women could not be in the same classrooms, dorms, or labs as men, that for centuries women were not considered the material for university leadership. But as Laurel Ulrich wrote in her 1999 essay, Harvard's Womanless History, quote, that is not, of course, the kind of history a donor would want to see printed in a glossy brochure, end quote. And um, we don't want this just to be brushed under, I mean, just, I think it just goes against, in fact, just the whole 
understanding the importance right now of monuments and naming and and history and um, we don't want revisionist history. In her note on the website about the rebranding, current Radcliffe Dean Brown Nagin writes, quote, it is a privilege to leave this institution and steward the legacy of Radcliffe College, a school founded to ensure that the standard of education embodied in Harvard was accessible to women who were then excluded from the university. End quote. I want to dwell on the past tense there, the two words then excluded, which imply that back then women were excluded from Harvard, but are no longer. However, another reading of then excluded is to mean later, or subsequently. In other words, Radcliffe was, quote, a school founded to ensure that the standard of education embodied in Harvard was accessible to women who were then, i.e. subsequently, excluded from the university, end quote. We want to be very well aware of our history, so this, some of these things aren't repeated or aren't repeated under subtler or changing circumstances where women again are undermined um, or, or people in general of any uh, gender identity. Reading the alumni petitions, a paradox appears in which the university correcting for historical exclusion, such as merging Radcliffe and Harvard to achieve co-education, and now the Harvard Radcliffe Institute rebrand showing how integral Radcliffe is to the university, replicates two historiographical exclusions. First, prioritizing Harvard's prestige and history over Radcliffe's, rewriting a womanless history, even if unintentionally. Indeed, the university's website states one problem with the old name was, quote, our previous logo type did not provide any hierarchy of information. This made our logo less scannable and made us an outlier within the Harvard family, end quote. So the process of making Radcliffe integral to the Harvard family forces Radcliffe and its history to take a lower place in the Harvard hierarchy. The identity of Radcliffe is being so submerged as to become virtually invisible now. And second, the minimizing of centuries of sexism and discrimination, as if that dark past has little bearing on the present. One parallel here might be premature declarations of a quote-unquote colorblind society when Barack Obama was elected president in 2008, as Nancy Stieber pointed out. The fact that we finally had a woman president of Harvard, Drew Faust, does not mean that this issue has been resolved any more than having elected Obama as president has absolved the U.S. of its history of racism. And there's so many still open issues and questions and wounds and, and action that can be taken. Alumni opposition to the Harvard Radcliffe Institute rebrand is not only about a name, but what they see as revisionist history, a struggle which, in turn, might inform the Institute's and the University's identities in the future. Here's Anne Lesk again, class of 1968, who you heard from at the beginning of the episode. If you look at the mission statement on Radcliffe's website, uh, which has not changed, it says that the purpose of the Radcliffe Institute to create an academic community where individuals can pursue advanced work in the academic disciplines, professions, or creative arts. Within this broad purpose, and in recognition of Radcliffe's historic contributions to the education of women and to the study of issues related to women, the Radcliffe Institute will sustain a continuing commitment to the study of women, gender, and society. The present-day Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study does not technically date back to 1960, 
when Mary Bunting created the Radcliffe Institute for Independent Study to support women's academic and professional aspirations because societal sexism and institutions like Harvard blocked them. Rather, today's Radcliffe Institute was founded in 1999, when Radcliffe and Harvard fully merged and is the inheritor of both Radcliffe College and the original Radcliffe Institute, hence its founding commitment to the study of women, gender, and society. And if you look at Radcliffe's strategic plan, which is a year or two old, Radcliffe engaged, you will find that they include in there a description of the, quote, core identity, unquote, of the Institute, which is very different. A laboratory of ideas that brings together students, scholars, and practitioners from the humanities, sciences, social sciences, arts, and professions, and engages with questions that demand cross-disciplinary exploration. Let's just read from Radcliffe Engaged, the Institute's strategic five-year plan that Dean Brown-Nagin announced in September of 2019. The plan is detailed online, and the broader vision of Radcliffe Engaged at least appears very aware of Radcliffe's legacy. In fact, the same sentences in Brown-Nagin's note about the rebranding, which I read from in episode one, appear in her letter that opens the Radcliffe Engaged plan, quote, The legacy of Radcliffe College is not merely co-education at Harvard. It is the recognition that universities will always be greater when they draw wisdom and talent from the widest possible pool of individuals. End quote. Basically, Radcliffe Engaged aims for Radcliffe to support interdisciplinary scholarship with renewed focus on civic engagement. So for instance, that might mean working with community leaders and supporting applied research that can inform policy debates. And the through line connecting Radcliffe's legacy to the current mission is, quote, a commitment to excellence and opportunity in education, end quote. But many of the petitioners don't see it that way. To Lesk, this strategic plan is a betrayal of the Institute's 1999 founding mission. So you will notice that the core identity of the Institute no longer includes any mention of women, gender, and society, nor does it emphasize that this is an institute for advanced study. It's now simply an anodyne place for interdisciplinary exploration. Jane Huber, the Radcliffe Institute spokesperson, did not specifically respond to this criticism of the Institute seeming to change its mission, but did write, Quote, I can only repeat in good faith that the goal of our rebranding efforts is in common cause with those who seek to ensure that Harvard proudly embraces the struggle and legacies of Radcliffe College. End quote. But I could imagine a possible response from Harvard being that if Radcliffe's history is of opening up excellent education and scholarship to all, and if Harvard has historically excluded women, people of color, and many others, then showing Radcliffe is integral to Harvard with the Harvard Radcliffe Institute name and devoting the Institute to social change and inclusion is a way to correct going forward. And more clearly associating Harvard's name with the Institute might be a boon to the programming because of the added name recognition. But the paradox I suggested earlier of addressing historical exclusion, furthering an exclusion from the writing of history, the historiography, returns. And that some of the specificity of Radcliffe's legacy and the focus on women, gender, and society, as laid out in the 1999 mission statement, might be lost. And Radcliffe was the place for women. It was the voice for women. And it continued to be an advocate for women within the university. If you go back to the controversy surrounding Larry Summers, when he made his very unfortunate comment about women not you know, being genetically unsuited 
for um, certain types of academic endeavors. Um, Drew Faust, who was then the Dean of the Radcliffe Institute, was able to illuminate the issues arising from his statement from the point of view of the women in the academic community. So yes, I felt it was very important for Radcliffe to be there and for Radcliffe to feel that being an advocate for women and women's issues was an important part of their mission. That's unfortunately no longer true. On the other hand, Harvard's and our society's understandings of social exclusion and inclusion have changed and broadened since 1879 or 1960 or even 2005 to focus on Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, queer people, and much more. And so it might make sense for Radcliffe to also expand who it includes and supports. Recall that for decades, Black women could not live on Radcliffe's campus and then lived in segregated dorms until Jewel Taylor Gibbs, class of 1955, protested and changed that. This is also part of Radcliffe's legacy, and so maybe it should also be part of the Institute's present-day work. One fundraising solicitation from the Harvard Radcliffe Institute, mailed in May of 2021 and which an alumni shared with me, states that until 1977, quote, Radcliffe narrowly meant pressure on the college to admit women graduates. Looking back, able now to see that exclusion is a principle that can be applied to any group, Radcliffe means, more inclusively, the ambition to keep Harvard a place where everyone can contribute their talents. End quote. But the idea that Radcliffe lost its focus on women and gender dates too far before Radcliffe Engaged was announced in 2019 or the recent renaming. As Nancy Stieber, Radcliffe Class of 1971, said she experienced firsthand as one of the Institute's inaugural fellows in 2000. I would say that I think all of us have this secret fear that we're just a few decades maybe away from Radcliffe being eradicated altogether from the name, and then it just becomes the Harvard Institute for Advanced Study, because after all, there's a Princeton Institute for Advanced Study. All of the institutional changes that were made were to, in a sense, to bring this, the Bunting Institute, the old Bunting, into alignment with the profile of an Institute for Advanced Study at the international level. So. You know, the Netherlands Institute for Advanced Study was compared with, the, the obviously IAS in, at Princeton was a comparison. Um, there, there, this, this really a very limited number of institutions of this particular type in the world. And they were used as models in 1999 with the creation of the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. As a fellow in 2000, Stieber feared that the direction the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies, newly constituted, was going to move would be toward, very much toward, a jewel in the crown of Harvard um, and quite parallel to the Princeton Institute for Advanced Studies. For two decades since the 1999 merger, Recurrent articles in the Crimson, Harvard Magazine, and major outlets like The Times about the Radcliffe Institute have questioned the focus on women, gender, and society as unclear, undefined, or even in competition with quote-unquote advanced study. Alumni and former fellows have repeatedly written letters criticizing the Institute's seemingly lessened focus on women, lamenting the loss of historic tradition and pointing to an unfilled need in a still structurally sexist world. Harvard administration, meanwhile, has in the past responded that the Radcliffe Institute is not just a place for public policy focused on women, 
that it is now finally integrated into the university's mission, and that supporting the best interdisciplinary scholarship is not exclusive with recognizing the Institute's origins in supporting women. It all sounds awfully similar to what is happening today. Stieber told me of her fear in 2000 that Radcliffe and being modeled after the Princeton Institute would lose its historic focus on women. Oh, I believe it has come to fruition. It is true that the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study now has fellows of all genders, including men, and that much of the research it supports does not explicitly focus on gender in society. But the Institute does continue to host the Schlesinger Library, one of the premier archives of women's history in the world. It does have fellows whose work is primarily about women, gender, and society, and it has initiatives like the Long 19th Amendment Project, explicitly devoted to women's history. Sina, the 2019 fellow who you heard from earlier, researched the 19th Amendment and its roots in abolitionist feminism. I don't think it would have made a difference for me applying if it was called, you know, Harvard Radcliffe Institute at that time. For me, the most important resource was really the Schlesinger Library. That being said, the Long 19th Amendment Project is not prominently featured on Radcliffe's website or on communication, and fellows focused explicitly on women, gender, and society are relatively few in number. I'm reminded of an obstacle the Women's Education Association faced in establishing a women's college in the late 1800s when Harvard President Charles Eliot wanted to turn Harvard into a premier research university, and he did not see women as part of that vision, which Sally Schwager explained in episode one. As Eliot's ambitious plans for Harvard to build a scholarly university of national, international scope to develop the graduate program, um, that serves actually to diminish opportunities for women that had existed before. One way to see the historical echoes is a break. An institute made to support women, who were once not imagined in the sphere of graduate research, is now leading some of the most advanced work at the university. And the focus on engaged scholarship finally clarifies the vague connection between women, gender, and society, and the institute's commitment to advanced study. But another way to see the lessened focus on women at the Institute is its continuity. That to make Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study like its Princeton counterpart, maybe it couldn't only support women scholars or primarily focus on women, gender, and society. On face value, that's because, as I quoted from past Institute deans in episode 2, some of the best scholars will be men, and some of the most important scholarship will not primarily focus on gender. But thinking more symbolically, this change might be because scholarship on and by women might be perceived as too narrow, quote-unquote, for the broad and historically men-dominated notion of advanced, postgraduate, and leading study. There is a tension, or even competition, between these goals, advanced study, and honoring Radcliffe's roots, as Lesk sees it. The women who were earning a fraction of what male counterparts receive today can tell you that there's a real need for the Radcliffe Institute's historic mission. The women who are out of the workforce now, because we have such an appallingly patchwork childcare system, can tell you that there are urgent needs for well-grounded studies of what works in other societies in terms of childcare structure. Women's medical history is very different than men's medical history. You know, for decades, the only research on cardiac problems was based on studies of men. So there are many, many places in our society where women are not 
receiving equal access to resources or equal treatment by society. And I happen to believe that the best way to attack problems like this is with fact-based, science-based studies. And you need somebody for whom this is an important mission. And the Radcliffe Institute. In that place, it's not anymore. A concrete place to think through the clash over the Radcliffe Institute's mission is the Presidential Initiative on Harvard and the Legacy of Slavery, which is anchored at Radcliffe and led by Dean Brownnack. Some alumni are confused that an initiative focused on slavery is taking place at Radcliffe, like Paula Tavrow, class of 1981. I think that's a very important and worthwhile endeavor to understand and explore the intersections of slavery and, and Harvard. but. Again, it, it, it really is, if anything, I mean, completely peripheral to Radcliffe. And, and it, again, it's part of this submerging of, of Radcliffe's identity, which is distressing. Um, and there was a, uh, a compact that we understand was put together in 1999, in which it was agreed that, that Radcliffe would always have this role of uh, uh, advancing, promoting women's scholarship and or scholarship on issues of very strong relevance to women. Now, to be completely honest, I was slightly uncomfortable hearing this. Patriarchy and slavery, sexism and racism, these are intertwined structures and forces. And gender equality is not mutually exclusive, but rather co-constructive with combating racism. There's also a history of anti-Black and other forms of racism at Radcliffe. So to give the other side of Tabarau's argument, Studying the legacy of slavery might also be seen as important to Radcliffe's identity and doesn't trade off with women and gender in society. Framing the study of slavery as a type of advanced study shows that it is being taken seriously and clearly aligns with the goals of Radcliffe engaged. And to center an initiative at Radcliffe that might unsettle Harvard University's very foundations would suggest Radcliffe is finally at Harvard's core. But we could also run with Tavra's argument. Why house this important initiative at an institute that descends from the annex instead of under the office of the provost? If the history of slavery is central to Harvard, which it obviously is, shouldn't the history of women's exclusion also be central and worthy of study? And then why put the Harvard name first? Do we still need an institute specifically devoted to supporting women scholars, or perhaps more broadly those who aren't cis men, especially as COVID-19 has exposed the enormous burden women still carry in our society? Are all these questions that I'm framing as either-ors, as trade-offs, really just pragmatic considerations, the result of limited resources given to quote-unquote diversity and inclusion? I can't answer these questions, but I can explore a related one. Whose answers would matter? Just as I've asked, who writes the history of Harvard? Now I want to know, who has a say in decisions about Radcliffe's past, present, and future? In May 2021, as the commencement activities were, were coming up into view, and when fundraising solicitations quintupled in frequency, whether by paper missives or by email, that was when people started noticing, you know, what's, what's this? Harvard Radcliffe Institute? What is that? What is that? As Mays described it, most alumni only noticed the rebranded spring of 2021 when Harvard and Radcliffe started asking for money. 97% of Radcliffe's operating budget comes from donations. 
and then the letter writing and petition writing started in May. But the rebrand itself happened in January of 2021. The Institute's website claims the rebrand was the result of a two-year process that consulted staff, faculty, students, and alumni. So why was there so much uproar, and why was it several months delayed? Here's Mace. We find very weird, you know, across these 20 years of classes, you know, from the 60th reunion to the 40th reunion, we find it very strange that none of us knows anyone who was consulted. None of us received the least invitation to consultation. I sent several emails asking about this to Radcliffe Institute spokespeople, but received no response to the question of consultation. I'm going to float one educated guess. One of the six strategic goals in Radcliffe Engaged, the Institute's strategic plan through 2024, is, quote, increase the impact of Radcliffe communications. Do so by shifting to a strategic communications model that fosters a strong organizational identity and privileges the Institute's priorities and core audiences, end quote. Presumably, the rebranding to the Harvard Radcliffe Institute is part of this strategic communications model and the fostering of a strong organizational identity, especially because the language used to justify the rebranding and the language of Radcliffe Engaged are similar and in many places identical. Now, in coming up with the Radcliffe Engaged plan, Dean Brown-Nagin partnered with a consulting firm and consulted many groups, including the Dean's Advisory Council, which has several Radcliffe alumni on it. Mays had a similar intuition. You go a little deeper into the site, we find the, the page that you have referenced that describes who are the people who were consulted or who were in focus groups or whatever. And there it does not say alumni at large. It does mention the Dean's Advisory Council, but with all due respect, the, the Dean's Advisory Council are people who are, I mean, apparently uh, very, very much embedded. And also it's interesting that it's a very, very long list of bankers and, and financial advisors, along with other profiles of, of great value. I guess that that's supposed to be the alumni who were consulted. Now, some of the council is not bankers or financial advisors, but much of it is. Regardless of whether the Dean's Advisory Council was the only alumni consulted, it's clear that the consultation was narrow if hundreds of alumni, including class secretaries and treasurers, who are very involved with Radcliffe and Harvard and represent their years, were not contacted beforehand about the rebrand. As Steber told me, One of the things that is aggravating is the sense that you, you, you weren't even consulted or that your representatives weren't consulted. Or, at this point, it really is the great mystery. Who did you consult? But as I can't solve that mystery, here's a related one. Consultation to what end? I have another educated guess, this one rather obvious, capital. Consider another of Radcliffe Engaged's six strategic goals, which is basically to raise more money. Quote, develop and implement a comprehensive fundraising strategy to support these strategic goals and ensure long-term financial sustainability. End quote. And consider that while many of the alumni petitioners have asked to have conversations with President Bacow or Dean Brown-Nagin, the only person I've spoken to who has had a direct conversation with someone at Harvard was Anne Lesk after she withdrew her reunion pledge. I, in response to my personal letter to Dean Nagin, which said, I want to be released from my 50th reunion pledge, I got a, an outreach from Stacey Elwood. She spoke with Stacey Elwood, an Associate Dean of External Relations at Radcliffe, 
who, among other responsibilities, oversees public and private philanthropy. What was the point of that conversation? There was very little point to the conversation, frankly, because she was simply reiterating the statements that you referred to from the rebranding page about how this was really beneficial and so on and so forth. So clear that they were not changing their position on the rebranding. They were not changing their position on the strategic plan. And fundraising is important because, recall, almost all of Radcliffe's operating budget comes from donations, 97%. So the rebranding and reconstituted Radcliffe identity, it advanced an inclusive scholarship with Harvard name recognition, might help attract new donors. Smart said, so I don't quite understand that rationale. I have a feeling that you can understand for fundraising purposes. They feel, I think, I, this is not what they say to me directly, but I, I was a marketing person myself, so I understand these things. That having the Harvard name is better, better known can perhaps bring in more financial support. But, you know, in my, in my opinion, fundraising's fortunes can change for the better, as well as for the worse. In request for comment, Elwood re-emphasized that the quote-unquote brand updates were driven by a good-faith attempt to increase awareness of Radcliffe and wrote, quote, our recent brand refresh was not driven by fundraising, end quote. Elwood also added that, quote, the dean has responded directly to all alumni and friends who have written to her about the rebrand, end quote. Still, according to the Institute's website and statements from Radcliffe spokesperson Jane Huber, which I read from earlier, the loss of Radcliffe's name recognition was measured through media coverage. So one of the core audiences of the rebrand was definitely media outlets, and another may have been donors. But it's not so clear if Radcliffe alumni were front of mind. I've been able to read many of Dean Brown-Nagin's and President Backhouse responses to alumni petitions. Many of the emails are similar, some almost the same. And although many are longer and engage the specific letter writer's points, they also reiterate the arguments on the Institute's website and provide hyperlinks to those web pages, which I have been quoting from extensively. Dean's letter of reply to, to the Harvard and Radcliffe 1981 letter, her assurance that, I'm reading, we plan to evaluate the impact of our new branding over time. And our feeling is that evaluation has started. It has started. You have hundreds of people telling you what the impact of your new branding is. And those hundreds of people are telling you that it's alienating the identity of Radcliffe. It's important to note that the alumni petitioners don't all hold the same views. Some are very opposed to what they see as the Institute's changing mission like Anne Lesk. Others are mostly concerned with the Radcliffe name. Some see no room for compromise, while others like Mays want to speak with the Radcliffe administrators and are open to persuasion. And there are also alumni who are fine with the rebranding and did not want to sign any petitions. Mays forwarded me an email from one such person wrote that she more or less agreed with the Institute's logic and added, quote, The purpose and focus of the institution has changed radically from our day, and certainly from the pre-war days, when it was in the business of educating undergrads. I don't see the need to hold on to the brand exactly as is when the mission has evolved, end quote. Mays, above all, wants a dialogue. You know, it, it could very well be that the dean could present a very attractive reasoning for this rebranding and for this emphasis on on Harvard first and for the emphasis on saying, hey, it's a fresh new brand. You know, maybe maybe there's something really, really smart and attractive into that. Maybe she could win the concerned alumni to her views. 
And in dialogue, maybe the, the dean and her team could learn something new. And the alumni and the dean together could perhaps build something stronger. But without, without dialogue, those, those potential outcomes are never achieved. And we feel that that is a, a loss to Radcliffe, this evolving institution that is Radcliffe. Radcliffe. It's a loss to the Dean and her staff, and it's a loss to the community. And in that, it is a blow to the sustainability of this Radcliffe place that the Dean professes to, to want to support into the future. And we want to highlight that, that ignoring a request for dialogue uh, has a very strong effect. It, it alienates the community, it squanders good feeling and trust, and it, it silences voices and it says, you know, these voices don't matter. These hundreds of Radcliffe alumni may not have been consulted in the two-year process leading up to the rebrand, but they have made their voices heard since. In January 2021, the Institute announced this rebrand and launched a new website, which stated, quote, the Harvard Radcliffe Institute is one of the world's leading centers for interdisciplinary exploration, end quote, as the most prominent identity statement on the website. That new name featured everywhere in descriptions of the Institute's history, mission, and current work, while the full name, the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard, was hard to find. The Institute's work on women, gender, and society in this January version of the website was not on the landing page, and it did not feature prominently elsewhere. Instead, Radcliffe engaged in the Harvard and the Legacy of Slavery initiative took center stage. Many alumni were incensed at the new website, including Susan Smart, class of 1971. Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study will always remain the Institute's formal name. But I wonder what form this is going to take and where. Where will they use it? Because it doesn't seem that they'll be using it in the press. And that does become your public identity. It may be that the Radcliffe Institute name will only now appear on the history page on the website. But dozens of letters and hundreds of signatures later, on June 29th, 2021, the website changed. Now, the opening sentence reads, the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University, known as Harvard Radcliffe Institute, is one of the world's leading centers for interdisciplinary exploration. And the Institute's work on women, gender, and society is among the first areas of research highlighted. And we have learned by this, you know, set of interactions that Clearly, alumni support and acceptance and buy-in are not performance criteria. What are the performance criteria for this branding? I suppose, given that it's been framed as, as addressing major media, I guess they're going to be able to count in six months that, you know, the four articles on, on Radcliffe Institute fellows said Harvard Radcliffe Institute. Great. <laughs> As to the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies mission or its capital raising needs or whether they changed their website in response to hundreds of angry alumni, I can only speculate. But I can say that the Harvard Annex is founded in 1879 no longer exists. Neither does Radcliffe College is incorporated in 1894. Harvard Radcliffe College of the non-merger merger era is also gone, as are the Radcliffe Institute for Independent Study and the Bunting Institute in their first incarnations. But that does not mean that we need to forget or flatten their histories. 
I think it's justified for, for a person to have a perception that Radcliffe doesn't exist anymore. I think that indeed there's been a, a huge challenge uh, through that history that you've mentioned of non-merger mergers and continually trying to reinvent a place and an identity for Radcliffe. The fact is that Radcliffe does symbolize and Radcliffe does make real the presence of women in the intellectual universe. It does symbolize and make real opportunities for women to be, as um, President Bunting put it, you know, to be expected in the universe of learning and scholarship and discovery and progress. And so for me, it is appropriate that the struggle to define Radcliffe go on and continue. And I regret that the idea of a brand refresh is supposed to solve all those problems. And I regret that the, well, I'm not sure how to finish that sentence. To embrace Radcliffe's legacy and engage the history of women at Harvard is to challenge the notion that Harvard is benevolent. It is to challenge a historiography that arises from, and perhaps contributes to, a power structure that enables the abuses in Harvard's anthropology department now coming to light through the Crimson's reporting in a Title IX investigation. To embrace Radcliffe's history is also to understand that the women pushing to be included into Harvard at various stages were not always inclusive themselves, and thus to prevent anyone, people and institutions alike, from feeling morally righteous. To know there is always, somewhere in some time, in the past to be rediscovered, and in the future to prevent another annex. The Annex is a podcast from 15 Minutes, the Harvard Crimson's weekly magazine, reported, written, and hosted by a sick-sounding me, Mateo Wong. This episode was produced by Joey Huang and Charles Hua. Huge thank you to Olivia Oldham and James Baikalis for editing, and to Ian Chan for music.